This is The Rounds Table. Hello, welcome back to The Rounds Table. Thanks for tuning in this week, listeners. I'm joined by Dr. Mike Fralick, as always, from the University of Toronto now, a general internist and a good friend of mine. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Kieran. Great to be here. And I think this is the first time where we're in the same room recording. We're not on Skype or FaceTime or anything. That's right. That's right. It's the first time you've been back in Toronto, actually, for a long time. Welcome home from Boston. Yeah, it's good to be home. <laughs> go, Leafs, go. Okay, here we go. Rapid fire, as Mike and I like to do. So four articles, brief, brisk, and exciting. Mike, why don't you lead us off and get us going? First article, published in JAMA, December of 2018. It's entitled, Association of Maternal First Trimester on Dancitron Use with Cardiac Malformations and Oral Cleft in Offspring. All right, Mike. So tell us what the research question was for this study. So pretty straightforward is on Dancitron, also known as Zofran, associated with congenital cardiac or oral cleft malformations. So my wife was pregnant and she got a lot of nausea and I thought about taking on Dancitron, but I was scared about all the possibilities that it might have. So besides my own perspective, tell me why this is actually important in the greater context. Yeah, I mean, that sets the scene pretty well. The vast majority of pregnancies, uh, women will experience nausea and vomiting. And most of the things we do for uh, pregnant women is based on very little evidence. And on Dancitron is commonly used and there's really not much evidence if at all, to support that. So it asks the question, is it safe in pregnancy? Good to know. It'll answer my and my wife's questions and maybe a whole bunch of other people's too. So tell me how they went about to answer that specific question. This was a retrospective cohort study from 2000 to 2013 using the mom-baby Medicaid-linked database. For anyone unfamiliar, this database is one in the United States, and Medicaid is primarily for people of low socioeconomic status. But what's really neat is that they're able to link the moms with their babies. And just for a bit more details about the design, they excluded pregnancy where there was known exposure to a teratogen, such as warfarin. They exposed pregnancy where the baby was born with a chromosomal abnormality, as well as women who got Zofran, aka Ondansetron, before pregnancy. So the exposure was at least one prescription for Ondansetron in the first trimester, and unexposed was no prescription for the medication, and they also had some other reference groups. Does that database tell us anything about the dose or the frequency in which they might be actually taking it? So it does give some information related to the frequency of how many times it was prescribed. A lot of the U.S. databases, it's actually quite hard to figure out the dose with precision, but the authors do look at the frequency of which it was prescribed. Okay, and what were they measuring as far as the outcomes? So the primary outcome was an inpatient or outpatient diagnosis of the baby within three months of life for a cardiac cleft or um, any congenital abnormality. And this is a pretty robust design and one that's been done probably at least a hundred some odd times with this database. So what did the patients look like? Did they look anything like my lovely wife? So the mean age was 24. I won't ask your wife's age, Kieran. Um, 1.8 million pregnant women included. Uh, 50% were white, 30% were black, and 10% were Hispanic. You know, as you might guess, the mums were quite healthy at baseline, but 10% had depression or anxiety. And I'll note that 5% of pregnant women received on Dancitron, and that corresponds to 
percent of pregnancies in 2000 compared to 10 percent in 2013. So that's actually a thousandfold increase in about a decade, which is interesting. And do we get a sense of whether these women, these moms, were exposed to other medications along the way? Like, was this the first, second, third line, or did they go straight for the money with the Zofran? Yeah. So the tricky part to answer that is some of the other medications for nausea and vomiting, as you can imagine, there's no prescription for them. Gravol, for example, as well as other antiemetics. There just isn't a prescription. And if there isn't a prescription, this database will not capture it. But they did do some interesting secondary analyses where they looked at other medications that were used. Okay, fair enough. It's a prescribing burden and propensity to use different medications. Okay. Uh, Enough said. What were the main results? Mike, take us through them. Yeah, so the main results here is that there is no increased risk of congenital cardiac malformations. There was an increased rate of oral cleft malformations. The relative risk, so you're looking at a 24% increased risk, which that doesn't mean much to me. So in absolute terms, that's three additional cases per 10,000 live births for women who received ondansetron compared to women who did not receive ondansetron. And there were many secondary outcomes and subgroup analyses. And no matter how you change things, um, this finding was very consistent, even if you used a different class of antiemetic as a comparator, or if you looked different frequency of prescribing, this is a pretty consistent finding. So what do you think the limitations are before I ask any other questions? Yeah, the big limitations. So, of course, this is an observational study and there is going to be unmeasured confounding. There are some, you know, intrinsic difficulties where you're comparing a group of individuals who got a prescription to non-users. There's a reason why some people get a prescription and maybe we're not capturing the reason why they got it. And that reason is associated with the increased risk of oral cleft. But of course, when they used a comparator group, they found a similar finding. But also, this is a Medicaid population. So remember, these individuals are of low socioeconomic status. And I'm not sure how it would translate, let's say, if we use the Ontario database that included all women who are pregnant. And then also, they only looked at live births. So if there were severe malformations that resulted in, let's say, fetal death, that data would not be captured here. Okay. Well, I think that gets at some of the concerns I had around the severity of malformations. So I'll just move straight to the punchline. Tell me, what was the take-home point, Mike, for this study? I think the take-home point is that ondansetron is pretty safe here, not associated with cardiac congenital abnormalities or other abnormalities, but a very slight increased risk of oral cleft abnormalities, which I bet probably is related to an unmeasured confounding. So that's a take-home point for me. Okay. And in your care of pregnant women, does this change your practice or does this affirm your current practice? I think it's practice affirming uh, for women who do have severe nausea and vomiting. I really do think that this is a good and effective medication. So I'm going to keep on giving it. And now I'll actually be able to give them some pretty good estimates in terms of the potential risks with this medication. Okay. Let's move on to round two. So I'm going to set up my studies in the following order. First, I'm going to talk about a study that talks about prescribing medications, and the second one talks about de-prescribing medications. So this first study is entitled Appropriateness of Outpatient Antibiotic Prescribing Among Privately Insured U.S. Patients, ICD-10-CM-Based Cross-Sectional Study. Whew, what a mouthful. This is by Dr. Chua, published fresh off the press at the time of recording in the BMJ in January of 2019. 
All right, Kieran, and I'll note up front that the senior author is someone who I got to know very well, Jeff Linder, who's also pretty active on Twitter. So uh, hopefully we catch his attention by reviewing this article of his. But what was their research question here? Well, they really wanted to know what proportion of outpatient prescriptions for antibiotics among children and adults less than 65 years old are considered to be inappropriate. Yeah, and as a practicing internist, I can feel why this is important. But Kieran, uh, why is this important to you? Well, there's a couple of actual purposes to this paper. First of all, in 2015, the Diagnostic Code Classification Scheme, those things that hospitals use to code why patients come into hospitals and what conditions patients have outside of hospitals, was replaced from version 9 to version 10. This was a major change and really affects research. It was done to improve the accuracy of diagnostic coding for administrative data and research purposes. But because of that change, any studies that looked at antibiotic prescribing appropriateness did not exist after 2015 because nobody had a schema to classify all these different diagnostic codes in ICD-10 to figure out whether antibiotics were being appropriately prescribed for them or not. So that's really what at the heart of this study is. But I think from a population and public health policy standpoint, it's an update, a very important update, on what things have changed with respect to antibiotic prescribing and appropriateness in the context of all of these policy interventions around antimicrobial stewardship and programs and education. And so that is why I wanted to bring it forward. Kieran, you sound like you're going to become an ID doc with that monologue. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I got to admit, I work with these U.S. databases, and this transition from ICD-9 to ICD-10 in 2015, such a freaking headache. So good job for the authors for taking this one on by the horns. So what was the study design? So they used a cohort study that took advantage of administrative data, and they used the 2016 Truven Market Scan Commercial Claims and Encounters database. So for those of you, like myself, who had no idea what this was prior to this, it contains claims for people aged 0 to 64 years of age who receive private health insurance from their employers. So the already you can imagine this is a slightly different or very different potentially population than the Medicaid population that Mike talked about in his pregnancy study. So what they did was they took a pediatrician and two general internists and reviewed every single one-by-one one, 91,738 ICD-10 codes and classified antibiotic prescriptions for those diagnoses as appropriate or not based on whether the fact that condition would be considered an indication for antibiotics. So for example, in the three groups they created as always appropriate, those would be things like community-acquired pneumonia, urinary tract infections. Some conditions are sometimes appropriate. So in certain circumstances, acute sinusitis, acute otitis media, other conditions where antibiotics maybe are appropriate in some circumstances. And then there are diagnoses where antibiotics would be considered never appropriate. Things like upper respiratory tract infections that are almost always viral, acute bronchitis, and certainly non-infectious conditions where really antibiotics aren't indicated. And just so you know, the authors did highlight that they erred on the side of assuming appropriate use, i.e. that in those conditions where, you know, some people might think they don't really need antibiotics, but if some people felt like you could, then they would sort of shift towards the sometimes as opposed to never as far as appropriateness. All right, that all makes sense to me. So we have a big observational cohort study, and we have all of these 
various ICD-10 codes, and it seemed like what these investigators did was they found antibiotic prescriptions and then tried to see, was there a recent ICD-10 code where there was a, you know, an indication for it? Does that sound right? Yeah, that's right. And the, the bulk of the work comes from reviewing all those, you know, 91,000 codes and classifying them, and that's really from the research perspective why this study is important. But from the public health policy and implications, exactly what you said. All right. So primary outcome, what was it? Straightforward the proportion of antibiotic prescription fills in each mutually exclusive appropriateness category. All right, that seems straightforward. What did the basic Table 1 characteristics look like? Well, 75% of the individuals in this study were between 18 and 64, and about 25% of individuals were within each 15-year range uh, between that age gap. The rest of them were all less than 18 years of age, and again, evenly kind of spread out over the years. All right, and the main results? So this is kind of where it gets a little bit concerning. Only 12.8% of outpatient antibiotic prescription fills were actually deemed appropriate. 35% were potentially appropriate. 23% were flat out inappropriate. And 28% actually had no diagnosis associated with it at all. About 14% of individuals filled at least one inappropriate antibiotic prescription. And in case you're interested, those antibiotics that were most commonly used were amoxicillin at about 20%, ciprofloxacin at about 15%, and nitrofurantoin at about 10.5%. Those are the ones that are used inappropriately. All right. And, you know, so this is certainly concerning. I mean, I also wonder about what they mean by appropriate, inappropriate, and you touched on that, but that seems like a limitation. What other limitations here, Kieran? Well, I think I'm going to actually just focus in on exactly your point there. Appropriateness is really in the eye of the beholder. So you, you and I might see one indication as appropriate, whereas an infectious disease doctor might say, you guys are nuts, that's totally inappropriate. And a different type of physician, say a cardiac surgeon, might say, well, I think that's totally appropriate, and I use that all the time. So even though they used three different individuals, that pediatrician and two general internists, to figure out and classify as appropriate or not, it sets it up for variation in people's interpretation. Secondly, we don't actually know the pressures that are driving appropriate, inappropriate, or sometimes appropriate prescriptions. Sometimes it's a physician-driven decision. Sometimes it's a patient or a caregiver or both. And so they're not actually trying to get at that, but it doesn't explain why you had all of these inappropriate prescriptions in the United States. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I mean, certainly I've been guilty of sometimes people don't have an infection, but I do discharge them with a prescription for antibiotics. And I tell them, listen, you don't need to start taking this, but if symptoms do occur of X, Y, or Z, I would much rather you have something in hand than have to come back to the emergency department, for example. Mm -hmm. But okay, very interesting study. What, what's a take-home point here for you, Kieran? So I think that really what, and the reason I wanted to bring this forward is that it shows that rates of inappropriate prescribing are still high. How high? Well, that's, again, in the eye of the beholder, but still too high, I would say. About twice as high as appropriate prescribing. And that's despite all of these efforts and initiatives that are being poured out to try to reduce inappropriate prescription. So I still think that the take-home point from this is that things need to change. I don't know how, but I think they do. All right. And practice changing versus affirming for you? Well, it affirms in the sense that I find myself on somebody who tries to avoid antibiotics. I've been inoculated by our ID docs in that sense here in Toronto. But I think it affirms that I should spend even more time in highlighting just how important that is. And this study gives you some quantitative evidence as to why. 
A nice subtle pun with inoculated mm-hmm. care. You like <laughs> they that. are. Oh yeah. Okay, let's move on to round three. Mike, what you got next for us? So back to the pregnancy world. Um, this is a research letter published in JAMA again. And the senior author was Dr. Joel Ray, a, a local Toronto in general internist. And the study was titled Serum Creatinine Levels Before, During, and After Pregnancy. Wow. It sounds so simple, which makes it so interesting. So tell me about what did Dr. Ray want to answer with this study? The goal here was to get a sense of what serum creatinine levels are like, you know, as the title suggests, before, during, and after pregnancy. And maybe I'll just hop in and say why this is so important. Again, we already alluded to the fact that there's very little evidence for a lot of the things that we do in the setting of pregnancy from an internal medicine standpoint, and I'm sure many other standpoints. And I've also realized that it's really easy to get reassured when I'm reviewing a lab value and it's not in red, my brain thinks normal, move on. Uh, But of course, one of the best clinical pearls I learned from Dr. Chital Gandhi when I was here at Mount Sinai, where we are recording, was about how a normal creatinine in pregnancy is very abnormal. Right. And I'm thinking back to my textbook of like physiology in undergrad at McGill where pregnancy has all sorts of crazy changes. It shocks me that a study like this is important to do in 2018 though, because it maybe hasn't been done before. So tell me, how did Dr. Ray go about to design this study? So another population-based study, this time it was cross-sectional, so it looked at one point in time, but it was serial cross-sectional, so many points in time. It was done in Ontario where 98% of mums are linked to their newborns, so another great linkage database. And of course in Ontario, there's universal health care, so you're really including the entire population. And just recently, laboratory data have been added to this database, so maybe that's why it's 2019 and it hasn't done yet. They included women between the ages of 16 and 50, only uh, women who had a singleton live birth defined as birth at 20 weeks gestational age or later. And it occurred between 2006 and 2015. And the women had to have, you know, one or more outpatient serum creatinine from 10 weeks preconception to eight weeks postpartum. And last but not least, they excluded women if their creatinine was elevated at a level of 125 or higher. In U.S. units, that's a creatinine of 1.3. And they also excluded women with um, pre-existing renal disease, albuminuria, pre-pregnancy, or various pregnancy-related complications like preeclampsia. And what was the primary outcome for this study? It was really just to document creatinine good old serum creatinine and to document it over time during those three periods. Amazingly simple and interesting descriptive study. So tell me then, Mike, what were the table one, what did the moms look like in this study? So 1.2 million pregnancies in total. Most of the women contributed one pregnancy to the database. And after the various exclusion criteria, there was 250,000 pregnancies included. And on average, there was one creatinine per pregnancy. Okay. And then what was the main findings then? So the main finding, you know, creatinine before pregnancy most often was 60, which is, you know, normal by Canadian units. And that's approximately 0.8 by U.S. units. And then by four weeks, four weeks in, it's dropped from 60 to 47. And now all of a sudden, 60 is abnormal. And then the lowest point is around weeks 16 to weeks 32, where the creatinine is hovering around 45. So that is the new normal. And then it's a really nice plot. It gives the 95% confidence intervals, if you will, to see, so what is the upper limit? And the upper limit is 58. And then by 32 weeks, it's starting to come up. And then post-pregnancy, it's returning to pre-pregnancy levels. 
Interesting. Okay. And so what do you think the main limitations then in this kind of a study? Well, you know, we have no clue why women are getting serum creatinine testing. This is not a standard test for pregnancy or before pregnancy. So you'd wonder how representative it is. But the fact that it was only done once makes me think whatever reason it was done for, if it was because they had an ongoing illness, uh, that probably wasn't why because it wasn't repeated. And again, this is cross-sectional at different points in time. It's not the same women who are contributing levels before, during, and after. And of course, the other limitation here is, so what? What are the outcomes associated with, let's say, a creatinine above the 95% uh, confidence interval? Fair point. So what are the take-home lessons from Dr. Ray's study? I think the take-home point is that a normal creatinine is not normal in pregnancy. So don't be reassured by the fact that the system is not flagging the creatinine value. It's really, really important. And the best case I saw of this was when I was a CC3 and it was the first time I had, I guess, ever diagnosed pregnancy <laughs> uh, or, or my supervisor did. Essentially, it was a young woman who came in with nausea and vomiting. I had no clue what was going on and her creatinine was 20. And the eMERGE doc said, she's pregnant. The eMERGE doc was clearly right. So um, this paper really reinforces that teaching point. Well, I do remember my hyperfiltration and increased cardiac output of pregnancy. So that's probably reflected here nicely in the actual lab values. I wonder if we will adopt that in our lab testing, pregnant versus not, as when you fill up the form. Okay, Mike. Well, thanks for bringing that to the table. Let's move on to the last study for the day. This is a very fascinating randomized trial entitled The Effect of a Pharmacist-Led Educational Intervention on Inappropriate Medication Prescriptions in Older Adults. This was the D-Prescribed trial led by Philippe Martin and published in JAMA in November of 2018. Top points for the D-Prescribed acronym. Uh, and what was the research question here? Does a pharmacist-led educational intervention reduce prescriptions for inappropriate medications in community-dwelling older adults? All right, so, you know, your last study, you clearly told us about why uh, we have a problem with inappropriate antibiotics, but what's the big deal here? Well, back to the appropriateness, inappropriateness debate, but nevertheless, inappropriate meds are common. About 30% of individuals who are older are prescribed them, and they have significant side effects associated with them and risks, so they're not benign. They used inappropriate, as most people would in the context of older adults, which would be defined by the American Geriatric Society Beers Criteria List. So it's a huge list of medications that defines medications that you should avoid in older adults, either because there's limited efficacy for their use, there's good alternative, effective, and safer treatments, or the medications are really associated with significant risks and the benefit-to-risk ratio is questionable. All right, that sets the stage nicely. What was the design? So this was a pragmatic cluster randomized trial that was carried out in Quebec, Canada, one of the eastern provinces in Canada. And the pharmacies here are their clusters, uh, and that's done as opposed to the patients because patients may use the same pharmacy. So they wanted to avoid any contamination between two patients who walked into the same pharmacy, and one may be educated and one may not be. In this case, it doesn't happen. The pharmacy is a randomized to the intervention or not. Now, the pharmacies themselves had to have at least 20% of their clientele who were over the age of 65, and these clientele had to be prescribed at least one of the flagged medication classes, which they focused on were benzodiazepines and sedative hypnotics like zopiclone, first-generation antihistamines, glyburide specifically for diabetes, and NSAIDs. And the intervention was a 
educational brochure that was dispensed by pharmacies for patients and providers, and that was versus usual care. So just so I have this right, the intervention here is that the pharmacist was handing out some document the pharmacist to the was patient. like, hey, don't take that medication. Well, kind of both. The, pa the pharmacist would educate the patient and the provider, but specifically it was done through the educational brochure, sorry, that they handed out to those patients and providers. Okay, gotcha. And what was the primary outcome here? So they wanted to look at the cessation of fills or refills at six months, and they wanted to make sure that that wasn't a substitution to another inappropriate medication class. So basically, how many people in each arm did this occur for? All right. And uh, what did the patients look like who were included? So in this case, instead of patients, they sort of had pharmacies that they described. So 65 pharmacies were randomized and 489 patients within those 65 pharmacies. So that worked out to be about seven patients per pharmacy. Hmm. Now, at the patient level, your typical patient in this trial was a 75-year-old woman with a college-level education who'd been prescribed a sedative hypnotic, about 60%, either benzodiazepine or sedative hypnotic, and she'd been on that for about 10 years. Interestingly, about 40% of people in this trial were taking more than 10 medications, which is quite remarkable. 25% of them were frail, so they were at increased risk of adverse effects from medications. And 30% of them had actually had previously attempted to stop different medications in some form or other. Wow, so that's some, some serious soul burden there. Mm-hmm, big time. All right, so uh, did the intervention work? Absolutely, quite impressively so. So medications were discontinued in 43% of the intervention patients versus 12% in the control. So an absolute risk difference of 31%. And that worked out to be a number needed to treat of 32 so all it took was about three people to have this educational intervention on, and you'd have significant reduction in their medication prescribed. Yeah, th those numbers, uh, you know, at first glance definitely look pretty impressive, but what were some limitations here? Well, are these findings durable? I mean, they follow these people for six months, but what happens at a year or two years? What happens when they go into hospital and, you know, you or I play around with their meds and have to treat them for delirium with certain, you know, medications, then they come out? Do those medications get stopped or continued? Who knows? We don't know. And also, this is an outpatient intervention. What about if we tried to do this in our inpatients, where you and I recognize that a bunch of these people may be on, quote-unquote, inappropriate medications, or in the nursing home? Does the pharmacist-led intervention work there just the same way as it works in the community? Yeah, I mean, these effect sizes are really impressive. Uh, it almost seems like too good to be true. Yeah, but, I agree. Uh, I only practice in the inpatient setting and maybe in the inpatient setting there's just so many competing demands and maybe in the outpatient setting there's a more attentive audience but interesting nonetheless. Uh, take home point here? Well it's a kind of getting at what you're saying. I mean these are almost seem too good to be true and so I think that the main takeaway for me like if you remember back when I covered the antihypertensive control in black barbershops trial this is the same kind of notion for me, that physicians don't have to and shouldn't be doing it all. This is a neat way to utilize our interprofessional colleagues to do these types of interventions, and they probably work in some way or other. Whether they work with the same effect size or whether they're durable and all the stuff we brought up, who knows? But the principle is that we can think differently about how we deliver healthcare, and the pharmacist seems to be an interesting point, focal point, on how to do this especially when it comes to medications. Fair enough, Kieran, fair enough. 
Okay, well, let's move on to my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment, where we're talking about what we are reading about. Mike, what's got your attention this week? Uh, so this I came across uh, maybe a couple weeks ago. It was actually on uh, Twitter, where I find a lot of good information. And this was uh, about semaglutide, you know, a GLP-1 agonist. Usually these are subcutaneous medications. This was a pill. And this one had unbelievable benefits, uh, including reduction in mortality and cardiovascular benefits. And uh, I clicked on the link and it got me to the press release and I was very interested. And I tried to find the peer-reviewed article and it wasn't published yet. And it just makes me think a lot. I've seen this a few times now. Why does that happen? And what are the implications of it? So anyway, it's more food for thought than anything else. Hmm, Interesting. I wonder what's driving that behind all that Who knows? Well, I have something totally different, but, you know, I've had a lot of questions from my patients about cannabis and various, you know, medical marijuana prescriptions for pain and various other issues. And that's just up until now, I've kind of dismissed it as sort of basically, I don't know the evidence, so I'm not going to really talk to you about it. So there's an article that came out in the Journal of Palliative Medicine very recently that was top 10 tips for palliative care clinicians specifically, but in general, I think it's applicable to most physicians and what you should know about medical cannabis. It's not a systematic review. It's not a, you know, in-depth, let's dissect all the evidence, but it's a very practical and helpful conceptual way to think about various uses of cannabis and the different compounds and the legal implications and various health authorities of using it. So I do encourage you to read it if you happen to look after any patients who have asked you about it and you want to have a little bit more of an answer of, I have no idea about that, so go ask somebody else who knows. Yeah, because that's the, that's the boat I'm in, and especially now that it's legal in Ontario. So is there like a number one tip in there that you can share with the listeners, but mainly share with me so I can learn something? Like what should I be doing differently or saying? Well, I would say from a practitioner's standpoint, the tip number one is the most important in that you need to know your local laws and regulations because (laughs) they are so much variation across the United States and depending which state you practice, whether it's legal or illegal. And in Canada, it's now legal across the board, but how you get it and where you get it is so variable at the provincial level. So that, I think, from a practical standpoint is the most important. From a patient standpoint, I'll put the link up actually on to a separate article that just simply talks about CBD as opposed to THC as two compounds that are active in cannabis prescribing and doses that you might use and situations you might use that in as a really practical prescribing tip if you were thinking about using it in the absence of high quality randomized trial evidence. All right, Mike. Well, thanks for joining us as always. I love our rapid fires. They're quite fun for me to do. And we hope to have you back on the show sometime soon. Perhaps it'll be you and me. Perhaps it'll be you and your brother, John. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Kieran. I look forward to it. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. 
You never know what's in store until you tune in.